talking to a friend this week who recently adopted a little boy from China. And she flew to China, and she got there, and she met the family that was fostering this little boy she was adopting. And she was having dinner with the foster family in Shanghai when the reality kind of caught up with her heart. And she said sitting there over dinner, she had her first bout with some anxiety. And she just started thinking, what if this is a total disaster? What if this is a complete mess? What have I gotten myself into? And she said, in the midst of that fear that carried on into that evening, she was alone in her hotel room when she began to pray. And in her prayer, she just sensed God saying to her, breathe in my Holy Spirit, breathe out fear and doubt. These are her exact words. She said she sensed God saying to her, I've brought you to this place. Have faith and proceed. And it was as if in the midst of her adoption of her son, God was making real to her, her own adoption, that she was not alone, that he was there with her, that she did not have to face what she was going to face in all the unknowns ahead, like an orphan herself, but rather as an adopted child of the Most High King. The scriptures say that in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. And I can tell already I'm going to cry through this whole series. <laughs> now, in biblical times, Adoption was actually better than being biologically born into a family because in biblical times, if you were adopted into a family, that meant you could not be disowned. Biological children could be disowned. But in Jesus' day, adopted people could not be disowned. And when you were adopted... You were an heir to the estate. Sometimes slaves as adults would be adopted by people who had no children biologically. And in that moment, they were heirs, and that could not be taken away. They could not be disowned. Jesus himself said of the Holy Spirit, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The scriptures say we are co-heirs with Christ, which means that we live in abundance and provision, not in scarcity. And sometimes uh, in the adoption community, you will hear of stories of children being adopted and many months or even years into their new home, into their new family. They will still be hoarding food, taking food from Halloween or from the dinner table or from school and stashing it away in their dresser drawers or under their pillows at night. Though they are in a family, though there is great provision, there is still a spirit or mentality of being an orphan. And in this series, we are talking about the spiritual uh, 
basically the spiritual theology of adoption. And what does it mean that we are adopted into the family of God? We're starting this new series. We're calling it Orphans to Heirs. And in this series, we're asking questions like this. What does it mean to be in Christ, adopted into the family of God, but still live like an orphan? What would it mean to start acting like an heir? We want to talk in this series about what does it mean to move in our mindset, in our worldview, in our attitudes, in our experience, from an orphan spirit to that of an adopted co-heir with Christ. So the mindset of an orphan says, I'm all on my own. It is up to me. The mindset of an heir says there is an abundance of provision for me. The mindset of an orphan says nobody cares about me, and if they do, I earned it. But the mindset of an heir says I am accepted, I am approved by Christ. The mindset of an orphan says my future depends on me alone, like I got to look out for number one. The mindset of an heir says, as God's child, God has a vested interest in my future. So each week of this series, we're going to be looking kind of at a different angle. Today, we're going to be looking at isolation to intimacy. As orphans, our experience is one of isolation. As heirs, living into our reality of adopted children of God, our experience is one of intimacy. Okay, so when it comes to intimacy, let's talk about intimacy. We seem to have this problem. In fact, the whole world, it's like all our relationships are diseased by unrealistic expectations. We want in others an intimacy that only God can provide us. So this happens all over the place. At home, we feel our parents fail us. I'm not just talking about like extreme cases, but all of us in different ways have that feeling of let down in our homes. Our experiences in romantic relationships often do not measure up to this like Pinterest perfect vision we put on a pedestal for them. Our friends are not always there for us when we need them most. Even in relationships that on paper seem to be wonderful and have many wonderful things, they do not satisfy our deepest longings. We often feel, even in our most intimate relationships, a longing for more. You know, through the years here, co-pastoring, I've regularly heard, I've even felt in myself, this sense with small groups, right? Where we all want more, we want deeper, we want tight-knit groups of friends. We don't want to be so scattered all around the city. And as beautiful as the connections we experience with each other are, we are also often left with this feeling of isolation, this feeling of wanting more, feeling alone. 
And here's the paradox when it comes to human relationships. In order to have close relationships, in order to have tight-knit relationships with others, we have to stop looking to them to provide what they can never provide. Because every single one of us has intimacy needs that only God can meet. We all have needs inside of us that human beings alone cannot meet, not even the deepest of friendships. There is something in each of us that we need that love and sex and relationship and friendship and marriage all point towards but do not replace. So deep human community, it is a reflection of God's love, but it is not a replacement for God's love. We need to have our needs met in God. Otherwise, we are looking to our relationships to provide what they can never provide. Francis Chan, author and pastor, says this, our marriage problems are not really marriage problems. They are heart problems. They are God problems. Our lack of intimacy with God causes a void that we try to fill with the frailest of substitutes, like wealth or pleasure, like fame or respect, like people, like marriage. True community is only possible when we have communed with Christ. The deepest human community comes as an overflow, an equal sharing of communion with him. I know of a guy who is a former addict. I'm going to just call him Jed. And he talks about really coming to experience the intimate love of God for the first time in his life. And when he did, he, he says it was like he had never experienced intimacy with anyone ever before. And it was not that he didn't have any people in his life. In fact, he was from a really good family. He had a lot of friends and a lot of people committed to him in his life, and yet he lived life always feeling alone, feeling isolated, feeling like he was floating above or beside or around the connections, but not intimately connected himself. And over the years, his community, his family and friends, those relationships just eroded away. And he knew, he understood, it really was his own fault. There had been just too many broken promises, too much deceit, too much manipulation. And the people in his life basically, seemingly all felt like at the same time, just decided that is one too many times on that merry-go-round with you. And they stepped away. And he was alone. He found himself in a year-long rehab center. It wasn't because he wanted to be there. It's just that he had nowhere else to go for that moment. So despite an abundance of love and support and people, 
he was unable to receive that. Now, the scriptures paint this picture of intimacy in Christ. And we could say in this series, our conversion is not complete until we are experiencing God as our Abba Father. That our conversion is not complete until we are experiencing God as with us, for us, as our loving Father. Now the experience of knowing Christ intimately It is not intended to be like an add-on for the super mature. It is not intended to be like some advanced program for the super Christians. It is meant to be the basis of our relationship with Jesus. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes I, maybe we, excuse ourselves from an intimate relationship with God, like, saying different things, like maybe, oh, that's for the touchy-feely types. I'm just not that emotional. Maybe we say, um, I am not worthy if you knew what I did. Maybe we say, that's just too confusing. I don't want to figure that out. And we stay right up here. But I wonder if sometimes underneath our excuses around our own fears of vulnerability that we have felt let down by other people. We have felt let down by God. And so we don't want to even acknowledge a lack of intimacy with God. Maybe for, for sometimes it is simply just we are scared of the pain that we know intimacy requires. Think about in a close relationship. Think about in a marriage or a romantic relationship. Real intimacy requires vulnerability. Sometimes it requires an uncomfortable honesty, and we just don't want to go there. We'd rather avoid it. There is a fear of being let down that keeps us self-protective. And when we are self-protective, we cannot experience intimacy. Because intimacy requires honesty, it requires vulnerability, it requires risk. When I was in my 20s, I uh, mentor to me, Jill Briscoe, shared a poem. This poem was so meaningful, I made a copy of it and put it in the front of my Bible. I read it so many times, I have memorized this poem. And the poem is called, I Told God I Was Angry. And to me, it speaks to the need to be honest and vulnerable if we are to experience intimacy with God. It goes like this. I told God I was angry. I thought he'd be surprised. I thought I'd kept hostility quite cleverly disguised. I told the Lord I hate him. I told him that I hurt. I told him that he isn't fair. He's treated me like dirt. I told God I was angry, but I'm the one surprised. What I've known all along, he said, you've finally realized. At 
last you have admitted what's really in your heart. Dishonesty, not anger, was keeping us apart. Even when you hate me, I don't stop loving you. Before you can receive that love, you must confess what's true. In telling me the anger you genuinely feel, it loses power over you, permitting you to heal. I told God I was sorry, and he's forgiven me. The truth that I was angry has finally set me free. Intimacy, anywhere but especially with God, requires honesty. Intimacy means you will have to deal with your disillusionment. You know, sometimes I will meet people who will say to me, I used to be a follower of God in the way of Jesus, but um, then I became disillusioned. Do you know what disillusionment is? It is simply losing your illusions. We think of that word so negatively, but I wish we could flip it around because every time you feel disillusioned, it is an opportunity to step into a deeper, more profound experience of God's grace. Barbara Brown Taylor says this, the disillusioned turn away from the God who was supposed to be in order to seek the God who is. Every letdown becomes a lesson and a lure. Did God fail to come when I called? Then perhaps God is not a minion. So who is God? Did God fail to punish my adversary? Then perhaps God is not a policeman. So who is God? Did God fail to make everything turn out all right? Then perhaps God is not a fixer. So who is God? Over and over, my disappointments draw me deeper into the mystery of God's being and doing. Every time God declines to meet my expectations, another of my idols is exposed. Another curtain is drawn back so that I can see what I have propped up in God's place. No, that is not God. So who is God? It is the question of a lifetime. And the answers are never big enough or finished. Pushing past curtain after curtain, it becomes clear that the failure is not God's but my own. For having such a poor and stingy imagination... God is greater than my imagination, wiser than my wisdom, more dazzling than the universe, and as present as the air I breathe, and utterly beyond my control. How about this question? Can you believe and trust that everything that comes to you is for you? And by for you, I mean 
for your formation. Can you believe and trust that everything that comes to you is for you? Even the stuff you don't understand, even the stuff that is painful, that there is an opportunity in it for intimacy with your creator. Even Jesus faced with the worst of evil was able to say in prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Can I believe that what comes to me is for me? Charles Swindoll once said, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I respond to it. Now, in our passage that Tim read in John 14, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he is speaking of sending the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, the, the word orphan is actually not used very many times in the New Testament. This is one of two instances where it is used. This spot where Jesus speaks of it, and again, in James 1.27. And from these two instances, we learn that God both looks after orphans and will not leave us as orphans. The Holy Spirit makes real our adoption. Jesus came to make a way that we could be adopted into the family of God, and God's Holy Spirit makes real our experience of adoption. So here's the thing. You can be adopted and not experience your adoption. You can be adopted through Christ into the family of God, but day in and day out, live with an orphan spirit. You can have a provider, but keep hoarding food in isolation. What is intimacy? Intimacy is shared life. Intimacy with God is shared life. The same power that made Jesus alive is making us alive in him. That is living in the light of the resurrection. So Jesus says in this passage, in John 14, you are in me and I am in you. And most scholars agree that he's using language, like a picture, a metaphor of sexual intimacy. That this is like a picture of just how close God wants to be with us. Our union with Christ, which is a theme throughout scripture, our union with Christ is meant to be an ultimate relationship that is giving birth to life in the world. That, is give it, that he is making all things new, and with him we are making all things new. So Tim Keller says, sex is for fully committed relationships because it is to be a foretaste of the joy that comes from being in complete union with God. Jesus says, you are in me and I am in you. He is speaking of union with God through Christ. 
later, like a chapter later in John 15, he talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. This is union with Christ. So here's another question. How's your union with Christ? Remember the story I told you about Jed? Came from a loving family, had good friends, always felt isolated and alone and outside, ended up in a rehab center. Well, he stuck with that rehab center. And about, it was a year-long program, about, about three or four months into it, he began to, for the first time, experience God as his Abba Father. The God he had always talked about became not this abstract, distant, cold, judgmental, disapproving God, but this intimate, for him, next to him, loving him, Abba Father. And he relays fondly about how one night in the rehab center, in the midst of what could have been that emptiness and that loneliness and that rehab center, he ended up spending a couple hours sitting on the edge of his bed, laughing and crying in joy at the thought that God was right there with him and that he was not alone. And he imagined himself leaning up against God on the side of his bed. And that experience stayed with him. That experience there stayed with him. And when he left and re-entered relationships in his life, for the first time he was able to have a community that finally fit because he no longer was asking his friends and family to be more than they could ever be for him. He was no longer cynical for people letting him down. He had come to know the intimacy of God, and that redefined all his relationships. We are being led into a communal life that the Bible describes as an endless wedding reception. So the scriptures say that we the church are the bride and Christ is the groom. That means your friends and family are like guests at your wedding reception. We are meant for, we are designed for intimacy, not isolation. And that intimacy begins with Christ. We're designed to live as heirs with Christ, confident and free of fear. So for just a few moments right now, we are going to have the band come up, and I'm going to pray. And I just want to give you a moment of reflection. And in this moment of just silent, prayerful reflection, you can ask yourself some of those questions. How's my union with Christ? Where do I tend to isolate? What would it look like to be more intimate with God? Maybe you could ask yourself, do I trust that everything that comes to me is for me, that is for my form formation, that, that everything is an opportunity to know him deeper and to know him more? Let's pray together, and then I'll give you a moment to reflect. 
God, we thank you for our adoption. We thank you for your promise to not leave us as orphans. And now may the word we have read be planted deeply in our minds and our hearts. Help us not to walk away and forget it, but to meditate on it, to obey it, to build our lives on the firm rock that is you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.